Talking History. This, this is News Talk. Tonight's debate is on Knut the Great. A Danish prince, Knut led a Viking invasion of England in 1015 and was crowned King of England two years later, ruling the country for almost 20 years. He became King of Denmark in 1018 and Overlord of Norway in 1028, creating a powerful North Sea Empire before he died in the year 1035. Today, King Knut is best remembered for the apocryphal and much misunderstood story of fighting back the tides. But in tonight's show, we want to investigate the life and times of the Danish warrior who became King of England. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Uh, Dr. Timothy Bolton is an honorary fellow of both Cardiff and Aberdeen universities and is the author of Canute the Great, published by Yale in 2019, as well as The Empire of Canute the Great in 2009, published by Brill. Dr. Caitlin Ellis is an expert on medieval Britain and Ireland, as well as the Viking Age and the Viking world, and has recently begun work as an O'Donovan Scholar in the School of Celtic at the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, and she has written about the ecclesiastical policy of Canute. Philip Parker is a former diplomat and publisher and is the author of The Northmen's Fury, A History of the Viking World, as well as A History of World Trade in Maps. Professor Levi Roach teaches at the University of Exeter and is an expert in kingship and royal governance and his books include Ethelred the Unready and most recently Forgery and Memory at the End of the First Millennium. Well, you're all very welcome and later in the show I'll be talking to Tura Skaya, one of Norway's most acclaimed historians and the author of The Wolf Age. But I might begin with Timothy and Timothy a question about uh, this myth this story about King Canute holding back or trying to fight back the tides because it seems to be a complete myth there seems to be even different versions of the myth and and how it's told so we might just uh, start with that given that that's how uh, certainly most people in this part of the world will, will, will have heard of King Canute Yes, it's called that blasted story in my house, because if you, if you spend your life studying Canute, it's all you ever really hear about. It's the first thing anybody asks you about. Essentially, um, bits of it are probably true, and, and bits of it are, are certainly, uh, probably not, let's not say certainly. Um, <clears throat> essentially, uh, the, the original story is told in the 12th century, or over a century after his death by a chronicler called Henry of Huntingdon. And he tells it, but it's got a completely different feel to that version we know of uh, from our own, from our own sort of, um, from, from the public knowledge now, in that, in that Canute, he goes down to the water um, and, and he, 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 he says to hold back the tides, as it were, and that's the bit we all know. Um, and of course, the, 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 the context that, the, that is obvious to the original listeners, but not to us, is that un, in really early English, so Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Norman, uh, in saints' accounts, saints commonly can control nature. So he's acting like a saint, and of course his feet get wet. Um, but then he goes back up to the church and he takes off his crown and he makes a speech and says that he's clearly not as great as Christ and all the saints. He's just a simple man. He's a human. And he puts his crown on the effigy of Christ. Now, that, of course, changes everything. He's not foolish. He's not overly proud. It, this is a stunt of Canute's, uh, effectively, to show that, that, that he is, he is um, beneath God. I mean, we do have evidence in the 11th century of, of, uh, of noblemen putting crowns on effigies, and certainly some part of this did happen. 
However, it's 100 years later and one suspects that Henry of Huntingdon was trying to make a point about his own time when he was living with particularly turbulent and proud kings. And he was trying to just cough at them and say, you know, the guys who came before weren't quite as haughty as you. The story... As, as it, the story really gets truncated in 1587. By that point, um, it becomes the sort of the jolly jape we know now, where, whereby he's, he's a clown, as it were. And it's just stuck, unfortunately. I, I feel really guilty now about ask, starting with you about that blasted story. No, 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 is, no, not at all. Well, it is the first thing you're asked about. But Caitlin... Of course. I, yeah, sorry. No, please, no, no. Please. Timothy, Yes. I was going to say, at the end of my, at the end of the book you just mentioned, I included an appendix because the publishers said, please, can we do something on that blasted story? Because everyone's going to go through the book and look for it. It's become the sort of the, the hook that everybody hangs Knut on. And one has to, one has to address the, 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 horned, the horned helmet elephant in the room, as it were. Excellent. And Caitlin, it is interesting because it leads to a, a different image of Knut. You know, this idea of, oh, he's ineffectual, foolish, maybe week, whereas in fact the, the real life King Canute is very different but let's get our maybe our terminology right. What I've seen him described as a, as a Danish prince, a warrior a Viking uh, what are we talking about in this period? Is he a Viking and, and what does it mean when we have this invasion of England? Mm. Yeah, so the Viking Age has sort of been variously dated probably from the 8th century to the 11th century so we would still say he's sort of part of what we consider the Viking Age um, different historians have maybe different levels of discomfort with the term Viking, but obviously it's one that's really popular and kind of captures the imagination. Um, so, you know, the earliest period of Viking raiding is a lot more kind of hit and run and kind of smaller expeditions, whereas obviously by Canute's time, he's leading a very significant army um, and, you know, he becomes the king of one of the most sort of powerful realms Um in Europe at the time. Um, so some people have tried to sort of divide into like two separate Viking ages um, to show that, you know, we're really dealing with um, a different scale at this point. Um, so Viking just means sort of pirate or raider um, in Old Norse in the language of the Scandinavians and gets sort of borrowed into English um, and other languages that way. So some people think that, you know, it's a bit it's a bit insulting to kind of refer to all medieval Scandinavians as Vikings. You know, they weren't all Vikings. Some of them were traders and craftsmen and farmers and so on. Um, and I suppose by the same token, maybe not all Vikings were Scandinavian um, either. But um, yeah, I think it's a term that we probably can't get rid of at this stage. And Caitlin, it's also very interesting that you know 1014 is the year of the famous Battle of, of Clontarf here when mm-hmm. Brian Brew defeats the Vikings and it, it's celebrated as this great victory. And that uh, we're possibly uh, not, not as aware in this country of how a year later there's this invasion of England, mm-hmm. Viking invasion, and uh, there the Vikings win. And uh, <laughs> the prince ends up, the, the leader becomes king of England two years later. And... Uh, uh, that England doesn't have really good luck that century with foreign invasions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So, so yeah, obviously England gets invaded twice um, in the 11th century, you know, 50 years apart. We, we might come back to that later. Um, and yeah, some historians have sort of noted that there is this sort of coincidence chronologically between the Battle of Clontarf um, and the Danish invasion um, of England. So so Canute's father, Sven Forkbeard, um, has been raiding England for quite a while, sort of on and off, and then really seems to start this kind of concerted invasion um, in 1013 and he becomes king of England in 1014, but kind of dies shortly after. Um, so Canute kind of has to almost start again and sort of reinvade, um, as you mentioned at the start, um, in 1015. 
seen. Um, so it, it is kind of tempting to wonder if there is a sort of connection between um, in 1014, maybe the Danish invasion isn't going so well. They've kind of had this setback. So sort of would that maybe inspire um, sort of some of the Irish to kind of resent the, the Vikings, um, the sort of Hiberno-Scandinavians um, who, who are their neighbours? But obviously at Glontoff, there are kind of Viking or Hiberno-Scandinavian forces on kind of both sides of that conflict. I mean, it is possible that, um, you know, Viking armies are obviously quite mobile. So it is possible possible that some of the same people who might have been kind of fighting in England and raiding in England, if that wasn't going so well, might have kind of turned their attention to Ireland instead. Um, so there might be a connection, but it's a little bit um, speculative. And Caitlin, is this a, was this a particularly violent period and violent time? Because again, we have the the image or the popular uh, image of this is, is it's very violent, very bloody. We are talking about all these conquests, but w- was there a huge amount of violence which accompanied it? Hmm. Yeah, so it is certainly part of the yeah the popular stereotype of, of of Vikings as these sort of ruthless kind of marauders. I guess you know attacking churches and um, killing priests and so on. Um, and I suppose we we wouldn't like to to portray them as as too cuddly, obviously. And obviously they they did do a lot of, a lot of violent um, things, but I suppose not necessarily a lot more than kind of all the other groups um, in the medieval world um, at the time. So you know the, obviously the, the Irish also you know were kind of raiding each other within the different kingdoms, um, including. Even even um, attacking churches as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose Canute himself maybe seems to be like fairly ruthless. So he um, he has one of the uh, the English kind of nobles um, killed um, once he becomes king, even though um, this man, Eadrich Strainer, had defected to Canute's side. Um, but he obviously decides that he's still not very trustworthy and he still has him... Um, hasn't kind of bumped off um so whether we sort of see that as yeah reflecting um his sort of violent nature or that kind of being almost a shrewd political move um I think it's up to people's uh, opinions very good timothy how much do we know about the early life of canute virtually nothing but we can we can de- we can determine just a little as it were uh, denmark is something of a dark zone there are no monasteries to preserve historical accounts uh, there are no historical accounts everything that we have comes from after Knut uh, and and uh, and decades after Knut but but denmark is a state which is slowly building itself up and centralizing under Knut's dynasty. Uh, I mean, his, his grandfather comes to power and takes over vast swathes of land, but then is toppled and dies um, of wounds which seem to be sustained um, at the hands of a group which, which is using his own son, Sven Fortbeard, so, so Knut's father, at its, at its fort figurehead, as it were, to come to power. So Sven comes to power, his father comes to power with a patricide sort of stroke regicide on his hands immediately. And the sources, um, the sources from 40 years, uh, 60 years later, are still at pains uh, to sort of avoid using these, these terms. And they're, they're still, it's still a very touchy subject, as it were. And so Knut is, is born, he's the second son. I mean, we, despite the sources diverging on that, we can be pretty certain he's the second son. Um, and, and his elder brother is called Harold um, of Sven Fortbeard. And it's a, it's a tumultuous society. It, it doesn't have a formal structure. Uh, what we can perceive, which is not very much, but what we can perceive of sort of power structures is that there are many different uh, uh, rulers under the king, all of whom have competing power structures and all of whom have a variety of titles, and they may just be slugging it out for individual power at that moment. Might is right. 
But Christianity is a part of this. Certainly there's pagan practices going on, but, but they, they, I mean, Knut's dynasty is Christian. They've converted to Christianity. And we know from some later figures hanging around Knut who are Danish. One of them is called, I, I, I'm just, I mentioned it because my name's Tim, of course, and he's called Timu. And, and um, uh, he's a figure who seems to stick to Knut's dynasty and ends up as the chaplain following Knut's daughter into the continent when she goes to marry the, the son of the German emperor. And, and he dies around 1044. So we can surmise that he's probably, he, he's active in these early years when Knut, Knut, of course, is born sometime around the year 1000. But he obviously must be a royal priest. We have some records of royal priests, but they're few and far, I mean, bishops rather, but they're few and far uh, between. But we can be certain that these people are Christians, and they're probably quite pious Christians. That's completely against the public view of these marauding Vikings. But the guys at the top, as they were in that dynasty, are quite pious. And, and the Knut, certainly he doesn't have the same, let's say, communication issues that, he, that, that Sven Fortbeard and his father, Harold Bluetooth, had because he's part of his father's plans. So Harold is left in control of Denmark when, when um, Sven invades on the, on the trip in 1014, uh, when, 1013 when, when he goes to England, seizes power and then dies the year after. And, and Knut is part of these plans, he's taken there. We know from some of these uh, poems written about him that he's very young and he's probably a teenager, he's 16, 17, 18, something like that at this point. And, and, and he's taken there, but we can, he's married into by his, his father seems to be putting down roots in England, he plans to rule. And he marries Knut into uh, Northern, Northern Midland and Northern English dynasties. And he's married this one lady um, who, who, is, who is sort of a scion of all these dynasties. And obviously it's in order to control the English nobles by having your son marry into this crucial linchpin. So the father and son are working together, certainly. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, what, it's a childhood we can't see very much of, but it must have been very ruthless, very rough and tumble. Um, and, and, but the one thing we can say is, surprisingly, these people are Christian. Very good. And Philip, what's really extraordinary is how rapidly he his rise is in that decade, in the 1810s, from the from the initial invasion to all those battles, the siege of London and so on, and 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 and, and winning and being crowned King of England, and then uh, the kingship of Denmark falling to him after that, that it, it just seems to be such a, a rapid period of success for him. Um, yes, and um, you know the, the first thing to, to think of there is that um, England, which was the the realm that he comes to um, power in first, was in a relatively fragile state. England had been um, devastated um, by warfare, by Viking raids, um, for decades, um, ever since um, the 980s, when uh, the second major period of Viking raiding in England began. Um, and um, you know, it was se- several years um, that um, Swain fought Beard, uh, several decades in the, in the ni- mid 990s. So England was, you know in a very fragile state. And um, so when um, Knut finally comes out on top after a, a complex um, period of political and military maneuvering in, in which, you know, first of all, his, his father Swain is, is, is accepted more or less as the English king, but then dies. And then the English um, recall Ethelred, um, the previous um, Anglo-Saxon ruler, back to power. And then um, Knut goes back to Denmark and um, then returns in the invasion of 1015, um, and finally, um, Edward dies, and um, Edmund um, 
um, Ironside, his son, um, fights with um, Knut, um, and um, they, um, Edmund is defeated, but they come to an accommodation, and then Edmund dies. So there's a sort of combination um, both of um, the weariness and fragility um, of England, um, and also you know, dynastic happenstance in a way, um, in that um, at a critical moment, um, the major focus of um, you know, potential resistance to Canute, which is um, Ethelred's son Edmund, um, dies, um, and leaving no really obvious um, Anglo-Saxon candidate for the kingship. So Canute you know, manages to, to slot into that. And his, um, you know, his, his acquisition um, of the kingship of Denmark, in a way, similarly happens because um, his elder brother Harold um, dies, leaving um, the throne of um, Denmark vacant, um, which he's um, able to take over. So to be as successful as Knut was, it, it required you know, a combination of you know, both ruthlessness and, and the focused application um, of violence, um, a kind of, you know, a certain real strategic political cunning um, and actually um, luck, um, you know, um, obviously the mortality rate in uh, in, in um, royal families at the time was, was pretty horrifying compared to now. But, you know, people died at the right moment for him and he was really able to take advantage of that. So quite apart from the policies that he then implemented to kind of knit this um, nascent empire together, he was kind of, you know, lucky and ruthless and able. Yeah, and I suppose every leader needs that, their enemies to die at the right at the right time for them. Levi, what kind of a, a ruler was he? You've studied uh, his kingship and uh, uh, he seems to have been liked. He seems to have been uh, accepted uh, fairly easily. And I just wonder how successful he was as king. So Knuth seems to have been an enormously successful ruler, partly because he seems to adapt with very... the line there. Maybe we might, Timothy, go to uh, Levi? Yes. Oh. oh, maybe, Timothy, Sorry, we might go to you. Yeah, Timothy, or is that Levi? That, that's probably Levi. This is Timothy, but is Levi there? Is Levi? No, we'll go with... Levi uh, is here. Yeah, Levi, what about that question about the kingship? So Knuth seems to be an extraordinarily successful ruler in part thanks to the fact that he moves very well between worlds. So he rules England very much like a previous Anglo-Saxon ruler might have, at least in terms of the structures. He replaces much of the personnel, but he rules very much as an Anglo-Saxon ruler. He issues law codes that build on earlier law codes. He issues charters, royal documents granting privileges uh, to laymen and churches, very much in the vein of earlier rulers. At the same time, he's clearly capable of moving to a very different world in Denmark and Scandinavia. And there is this kind of sense to which um, he has these two elements to his personality, both of which are kind of combined at different moments in his reign. And he's clearly got lots of uh, uh, Viking Danes around his court. There's lots of uh, um, uh, scaldic poetry, that is uh, Scandinavian praise poetry, performed there. But at the same time, he's capable of fulfilling all of the traditional expectations of a Christian English ruler in terms of uh, supporting the church, patronizing key centers of learning and knowledge. So if we were to judge simply from the written record, there wouldn't have been a lot to tell you by his um, patterns of behavior in England that he wasn't in fact English. And that's very much his um, efforts to do so. He doesn't want to behave differently um, in terms of that he wants to use the systems that are there in place and to use them to his own benefit and those of his supporters. 
and Levi, how difficult is it for him to to rule two different kingdoms? Because you know this is the eleventh century, or this is the eleventh, yeah, eleventh century. Ta- travel isn't particularly easy. You know, you don't have the modern communication tools that would allow you to to zoom in uh, uh, to tell the, the the people running the other country when you're not there at the time. So did he was he forced to travel between them regularly? Did he have one as his main base? Like, just how difficult was that? Was it logistically? Yes. So he spends a lot of his life in many different places. There isn't a, a, a single base in the way that a, a, you might have a modern capital. And he doesn't really centralize these kingdoms. So uh, Denmark is ruled from Denmark, Norway from Norway, England from England. But what is very new about him, because he comes from Denmark and has these wider North Sea ambitions, is that he's the first ruler of England who spends large amounts of time outside of England. And what seems to enable that to a large extent is the fact that England in particular is already a very centralized monarchy. And so it's a place that's capable of more or less running itself. And that's part of the benefit for him is that it's capable of generating large amounts of tax and revenue that he can then divert to his energies elsewhere. In Scandinavia, he often has regents in place for him. And here's where he uses his sons um, from his two different marriages, particularly. So there's clearly a need in particular there to have placeholders. And even in England as well, he has individuals who he entrusts power and authority to when he's absent. And we have letters of him back to England. And he's the first English monarch for whom we have this kind of correspondence. And it's clearly because he's the first king of England for many, many years who's been away from England for years on end. So he does need to find these alternative ways of ruling, but particularly the nature of the um, late Anglo-Saxon state in England enables his absences much more easily than um, it might otherwise have been. Very good. Well, tonight we are debating the life and legacy of Canute the Great. Talking history. This This is News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life and legacy of King Canute. I'm delighted to be joined now by Tura Skea, who is one of Norway's most acclaimed historians. He's written several award-winning and best-selling works of medieval history. The Wolf Age uh, has been a hugely successful book and uh, is the first of Tura's books to be translated into English. The Wolf Age, that's the the Vikings, the Anglo-Saxons and the battle for the North Sea Empire. And he's also the author of other books, including The Battle of the North. And Tura, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much. So when we look at someone like Canute, how significant a figure is he in terms of of Norse history? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, of course, in his own lifetime, Knut was immensely powerful and immensely successful, and he shaped Scandinavia uh, in many ways. Uh, but that being said, as, uh, my impression is that he's not as well known as uh, as he you would perhaps think. Uh, that he that that he should be uh, being so so important as a historical figure, uh, and I think that has to do with um, with the way we think about history. He has uh, traditionally been seen perhaps more uh, as an English king than a Scandinavian king, and he's been a little difficult perhaps to to place uh, in the national narratives of of uh, Scandinavian national history. And what are the sources like? Are there good historical sources for his for his career? Well, yes and no. Of course, he he lived in an age uh, where we have very little written evidence uh, from Scandinavia. Uh, so uh, uh, 
the situation in Scandinavia is quite different from the from elsewhere in Europe. Uh, so we have other kinds of of sources uh, like skaldic poetry and also the sagas, of course, the very famous Icelandic sagas, who, who uh, has a lot of information about figures such as Knut. But that information is difficult to use because it's it dates from a very different time. It was written down perhaps 200 years later after Knut's death and. Uh, and by that time, uh, Knut's age had uh, sort of transformed into a mythical and, and fairy tale-like past. So, so, so it's complicated using these sources to 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 get a clear impression of of what his age was really like. It is really a remarkable career the way he became king of England, then king of. Of, of of Denmark, then King of Norway. Uh, it, it was that usual for the time, or was this was there something unprecedented in what he was achieving? I think his career is quite unique, uh, perhaps in Northern European medieval history. Um, but of course, he was not uh, alone in achieving that. Uh, Knut he was. Um, a member of a very successful Danish royal dynasty who had in a couple of generations um, been able to uh, subjugate lots of Scandinavia uh, and and unify Denmark and claim, uh, shall we say, sort of an overlordship over large swaths of Norway. So so he started out uh, in a very powerful position uh, and of course, this was in the prime of the Viking Age, and uh, there are many cliches and, and misunderstandings regarding the Vikings, of course. But but one significant uh, truth is that the Viking kings of Scandinavia was, um, uh, shall we say, that based their power on the acquisition of silver uh, and wealth. From especially England, so so that's how all this started. So Knut uh, Knut's father, who, who was a very uh, important king in Denmark called Swain Forkbeard, uh, he had this fascinating, shall we say, business model where he would uh, stage huge um, plundering expeditions to England, not to uh, try to conquer England, but to uh, terrorize the English population and uh, and force the, the kings of the English to give them silver in tribute. And they would in turn bring this silver back to Scandinavia and distribute it among uh, Danish and Norwegian allies and, and uh, subjects. So so the whole power structure were, were in a way based on the acquisition of the silver and gradually this business model of going on plundering expeditions to England uh, transformed into uh, an ambition to uh, conquer England. And, uh, uh, and that's how Knut's uh, hugely successful career uh, that ended up uh, with him being the English king started. And when we talk about the North Sea Empire, what do we mean and and how crucial was that to his ambitions? Well, it's of course a little hard to say what was his uh, ambition uh, like uh, in, in the starting point or, or when he started out. 
but uh, I think I think his ambition, as well as other Viking kings of the same age, was perhaps simply to gain as much wealth and power and territory as possible. Uh, and he just became much more uh, successful than others. But he managed to, uh, uh, starting out as as the son of a Danish king, he start he managed to subjugate both England and Denmark and, uh, and parts of Sweden and also Norway. So 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 his empire grew and became very large and. Uh, uh, making him perhaps the most powerful figure in Northern Europe at the, at the, at the, in his prime. And what would you see as his great legacy? Uh, well, um, I'm not sure how to answer that because, um, however successful Knut was in in bringing this bringing these territories together uh, and under his personal control. He didn't really build anything that lasted. When he died uh, in in 1035, uh, his empire uh, in the north crumbled in plotting and warfare among his uh, sons and relatives, uh, and no one ever managed to to, to gather these territories to to get uh, an, into into an empire ever again. Um, that doesn't mean that he. Uh, didn't have reason to uh, to look back at his life in his deathbed and, and see himself as a hugely successful king in, in his age. But his goal was perhaps not to build a new state or anything like that, but merely to to acquire as much territory and wealth and and distribute this uh, within his family and and his um, uh, and among his allies. Uh, I think personally that what makes Knut so interesting today is not that he built anything really lasting, but but, but as an example of a very successful king uh, and a very successful politician of his age. And by studying him, we can uh, learn quite a bit uh, about the mechanisms of power and, uh, uh, and politics. Uh, during his age, so it's a glimpse into how a successful politician uh, could could act uh, in a way, and that was all about um, balancing uh, brutality, I think, and um, generosity. Uh, these kings uh, they needed to uh, make it into the interest of their subjects and their allies to keep them on top, so to say, on, uh, of the power pyramid. And they did that by punishing cruelly, really cruelly, uh, their opponents and uh, being very generous at the same time. And Knut balanced these two opposites perfectly, so to say. And I think that there's a timeless lesson there. Very good. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to Tura Skea, one of Norway's most acclaimed historians, the award-winning author of The Wolf Age, The Vikings, The Anglo-Saxons and The Battle for the North Sea Empire and more besides. Tura, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talking History. This This is News Talk.
Uh, welcome back as we look at the life and legacy of King Canute. We're joined by our panel, Dr. Timothy Bolton, Dr. Caitlin Ellis, Philip Parker and Professor Levi Roach. And before the break there, we heard from Tura Skea. Now, Caitlin, I want to ask you about his wives because uh, Levi mentioned that he had two wives. That gives the impression that he had one, she died, he remarried. But there, there was an overlap between them. Yes, certainly. So um, as Tim mentioned, initially, he marries this woman called Alf Gafu of Northampton. So before he's king of England, so maybe part of his um, father and Fort Beard's kind of tactics to um, ensure some of the English are kind of on side. Um, and um, after Ethelred's death and after he becomes king of England, Canute also marries um, Emma of Normandy, Ethelred's, Ethelred's widow, Um and um, that sort of seems to be kind of shoring up his position, kind of uh, securing some extra support. Um, but it's also um, quite useful in uh, forging an alliance with Normandy as well um, as a you know sort of powerful um, southern neighbour. And previously Sven and Canute probably have kind of um, been in contact with Normandy. So, it, you know, if, if an English army is not doing, uh, if a Viking army in England is not doing particularly well, Normandy is kind of a good place to go and sort of take refuge just across the English Channel. It might also be a good kind of black market for all the loot that you've taken from England that you need to kind of um, get rid of. Um, so Emma of Normandy um, seems to almost be kind of more important in Canute's reign um, than in Ethelred's reign. So whether that's because she's kind of now got this sort of vital position in sort of ensuring some kind of continuity, um, or I suppose it might just be, you know, their kind of personal relationship um, and their dynamic. Um, and this tactic of Canute's is one that um, his father previously used when he conquered um, Sweden. He also married um, the widow of the previous king there. Um, and we also know more about Emma because she commissions um, this work called the Encomium Mi Regina, sort of in praise of, of Queen Emma. So that's quite unusual that, you know, we have a have a medieval text that's sort of commissioned by a woman. Um, and that's one of our um, kind of key sources. Um, and yeah, so she has sons by Canute um, and then her sons by Ethelred are sort of off in exile um, in Normandy. And then one of them obviously is reinstated um, in 1042. And they it seems like they have a somewhat strange relationship, which is perhaps understandable in that she sort of uh, maybe abandoned those sons and kind of really um, thrown her lot in with this kind of new um, Anglo-Danish regime. Um, and uh, actually, Tim has written a little bit about... Um, how uh, Alfgifu sometimes used to get a bad press or sort of that she was just a concubine and not like a proper wife as if she was sort of lower status or sort of a mistress or something like that. Um, but I, I think Tim puts it in the book that, you know, you don't always trust the second what the second wife says about the first wife. <laughs> Very good, Tim. And like, it is fascinating that you have these two wives. Also fascinating, uh, as, as Caitlin explains there, the I suppose the manoeuvrings that Emma had to do in terms of uh, having her first set of children, the second set of children and and balancing all these different dynamics and I, I've read different accounts of what she really thought of Canute can we ever really tell uh, wh- how she really felt about him who is this Emma who what she thought of him I don't think I don't think we can these are political marriages and and it, it needs to be it should be stated as well that that Elskis with Northampton uh, it, it's clearly a Scandinavian type of marriage and right up until the 13th, 14th century in Iceland, you get this type of marriage, which is high. It's, these are not sexual slaves. These are not low ranking women marrying the king because they're beautiful as it were. But these are high ranking women who there's some sort of political marriage made. And then when it proves to be politically inexpedient, 
you can merely just go your separate ways, as it were. And, and I think Emma, it, we've always, <laughs> in sort of Anglo-Saxon studies, we tend to think of Emma, and then we try and understand Elskifu, the first wife, or the other woman, as I called her at some point. We try and understand her in light of Emma, because we have more sources. I think it's the other way around. I think, actually, we, some part of Emma, we need to understand by looking at Knut's first marriage, this political marriage when he's probably between 16 and 18, his father's invaded England, taken over. The father says, you're marrying her. God knows what he said and probably, oh dear, do I have to or whatever. But he says, you're marrying this lady here. Get used to it. That's a political union. But then when his father dies and Knut comes back to England on his own, the, the power relationships have shifted. They've shifted completely. And now Elskifu is useless to him, whereas Emma brings him all those southern elites where the money is, rather than the northern elites where his father planned to rule. So I think that can we actually knew what they, what they thought of each other? Well, like any arranged marriage, you hope for the best and you fear the worst. Excellent. Philip, what do we know about Canute and religion? Do we know if he was particularly religious? And what was his relation what was her, his relation what were his relations like with uh, church people? Because he seems to have been quite successful at getting them on side. Okay. Um, the first thing um really to to understand is that um Denmark had been notionally Christian for at least um two generations. It was Canute's um grandfather, Harold Bluetooth, who um converted to Christianity and um, you know, um um, built a, a Christian monuments, and there's a kind of great story of of, of his conversion and and how a, a, a missionary called Popo came and converted the Danish court. So for you know two generations, at least 50, um, 50 years or so, um, Denmark has been Christian. So he wasn't um, you know kind of irretrievably pagan and coming into a Christian um, country in England. And um, you know quite how devout or otherwise um, he was, it, it, it's it's more difficult to tell, but. Um, it's certainly the case that um, Knut had a, an acute appreciation um, of you know, the political convenience of Christianity and, and how um, you could construct a sense of kingship within a Christian context. You know, as a, as a Christian king, you were part of a community of Christian monarchs. And Knut, having built this great empire in the north, was you know could see himself as, as a real power broker, the you know the equivalent of the sort of greater monarchs of, of, of um, central and southern Europe. And also, um, you know, he understood um, the organized church in England was something that, you know, uh, could help him um, consolidate um, his power. Um, he established relations with um, churchmen such as um, um, Wolfstan, um, the Archbishop of York, who, who um, under Ethelred had seemed to be um, vitriolically um, kind of anti-Danish, anti-Viking, had, um, had, had written this thing called um, the Sermon, um, you know, uh, the Sermon of the Wolf, kind of castigating these terrible um, Danish invaders. But, you know, they, they, they came to a, an alliance at least of convenience. And, um, you know, Knut understood also the, the propaganda um, value um, of Christianity, of um, giving um, of la- lavish bequests to monasteries. And, you know, as, as a sign of his um, political um, astuteness, he also um, promoted the cult of um, Edward the Martyr, who was the brother of um, his predecessor, um, Ethelred, who um, under rather murky circumstances in 978, um, Ethelred, or rather probably his mother, um, had murdered um, at Corfe Castle, enabling the young Ethelred to to get to the throne. There'd always been a kind of terrible kind of stink and stench about this. And, you know, Knut, in in a way, to undermine the memory of, of his predecessor, promoted the cult of 
um, of Ethelred's murdered brother. And um, he, he also even, um, you know, as another act of um, a propaganda and, and in this sense sort of more conciliatory one to um, the pre um, preceding dynasty, he, um, he, he said of kind of written across the country to um, the um, Glastonbury Abbey where Edmund Ironside um, was buried and kind of laid, a, you know, theatrically laid a, a cloak decorated with um, peacock feathers um, on the tomb. So, you know, he understood how powerful, you know, how symbolically powerful an engagement with sort of Christianity and, um, a, you know, a strategic maneuvering around um, the, the sense of cult of his predecessors could be. So, um, you know, um, was he a terribly devout um, man personally? It's a little difficult um, to say, but you know, did he understand the benefits of being seen, um, you know, as a Christian monarch? Did he understand the benefits of, um, you know, giving lavish gifts to the church and particularly to monasteries? And did he understand, you know, the powerful role that um, ch churchmen favourable to him could have in consolidating his rule? You know, definitely yes. Levi, what happened after he died? Then did things all fall apart for his supporters, especially his 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 Danish friends and allies who were there in England, or uh, or was there any continuity? Absolutely not. So one of the things that we need to bear in mind here is that Canute's kind of uh, creation of a North Sea Empire as an idea lives on for a long time, up to 1066 and beyond. But in the immediate term, after he dies, there is a succession dispute in England, but it's between two of his sons. So he has these two marriages and he has Harold Harefoot, who's the elder from his first wife, Alfiafu of Northampton, and he has Hartha Canute, who he's placed in Denmark and who's already ruling Denmark on his behalf. And a faction back Hartha Knut, including Queen Emma, who's his mother um, in England, and another faction, particularly in the Midlands and the North, back Harold Harefoot. But the key thing is everyone is circling around two different sons of Knut. The assumption is a son of Knut will rule England. And in the end, Harold Harefoot wins out. But when Harold Harefoot dies, then Hartha Knut becomes king. So we have two sons of Knut being kings after his death. And it's only after Hartha Knut dies that then the native English line is restored. So um, it looks, by all appearances, as if England will remain Danish ruled. And even once Hartha Knut dies and Edward the Confessor, this is the um, son of Ethelred the Unready, is then finally restored and the native line is restored. Uh, many of the people who uh, Knut has promoted, like Earl Godwin of Wessex, remain in place. So the structures of rule he's created remain very enduring indeed. And Philip, it is quite surprising, maybe, that given that he had been king in England for so long, that it all seems to have, that he wasn't able to maybe establish things on, on a more secure footing and maybe put these structures in place so that uh, they would have lasted for much longer. Um, yeah, I mean, in one sense, it's surprising. In another sense, not. If, even if one looks at how Knut himself um, came to be king, both of England and Denmark, it was it, a matter of kind of dynastic chance that, that his brother died, that his, you know, his achievement um, was a fantastic one. It was an amazing one. Nobody had been, nobody before had built such a, a North Sea, a, such a Northern empire, but it was very much a personal um, achievement. And also there's, you know, um, looking backwards, um, there's, a, there's a terrible temptation to kind of impose our later sense of primogeniture on um, on dynastic succession and you know it, it it wasn't the case in the germanic tradition in the germanic tradition you know it was anglo-saxon and, and scandinavian in a way the most able would succeed and um if there were if there were two sons then quite often um traditionally the inheritance would be partitioned so in one sense there might already have been an expectation that um 
you know, one part of the realm might go to one, some one part might go to the other. And, and naturally, under those circumstances, there will be parties who form around those respective sons, as, as happened in, in the fight um, for England and as happened um, in the fragmentation of his empire. So although Knut built these things, it, you know, what he built in a sense was a kind of you know, a, a spider's web um, linking um, these various parts of his North Sea realm. And um, although strong in one sense, it was... It, there was a fissile tendency. It, it, you know, it was always going to be against the odds that those parts would, would remain together after his death. So, um, he, the, in, in a way, the fact that it fell apart at the end underlines the extraordinary nature of Knut's achievement in building it in the first place. So, Timothy, that brings us to the legacy then of Knut, and there has to be a greater legacy than just that blasted story. No, indeed, and and he's much looked over. He's much overlooked, as it were, rather, but by 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 sort of history readers. I mean, I would say that, you know, with with a book. But 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 um, but but it's it's different with with Scandinavian history. He's been relatively overlooked, but the sources massively focus there on Norway. You have so few for Denmark, um, and it's overlooked in that region. But but it, it's important to remember that whilst whilst the Anglo-Danish legacy of his rule and the people he employed and, and the structures of that court, they carry on until the Norman Conquest. The Norman Conquest comes and it sweeps all of them away and it sweeps all of them away. But you don't have that in Scandinavia. Right through to the, to the 1080s, you have Danish kings attempting to mount expeditions, large fleets uh, to invade. Um, after the Norman Conquest, there are Danish rulers turning up with the intention of seizing control because they, they are owed this, as it were, because, they're, they, because they are inheriting Knut's, uh, Knut's crown, as it were, there. And in the same way, if you then look to the saga material, um, which, as Tora has said, is written down 200, 250 years later in Knutlinger saga, uh, the only saga that survives on Denmark, uh, there are these enigmatic lines where, which are put into Knut's mouth by the 13th century writer, where he starts talking about how um, he has an inheritance right. They, they see the early Viking Age as giving Knut the, 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 um, the right to uh, seize England, but also they are dreaming of this empire as a sort of a golden age. And that carries on in Scandinavian history. He's, he's sort of in Scandinavian history, up until sort of modern historiography, he's a benchmark. He is the best of the best of the best that there ever was, as it were. And yet in England, with the Norman conquest, he's swept away. So I think his legacy is in Scandinavia. That's, that's where, that's where, that's where he has this resounding sort of impact on the ages to come. That's where he becomes this thing to aspire to. Um, and, and you see this in the sources where, where he sees that this is golden age. But, but in England, I'm afraid he was dealt a really bad hand by the Normans, as it were. Anything he achieved is swept under the carpet and moved on 50 years after he invaded himself. He's become, for the, for the English reader at least, the sort of tuning up session, the, the invasion that happened before. And I, I think that's sad, but what can you do? But what can you do? And Caitlin, I'll leave the final word to you. It shows that though there is a lot more to him than the story of just the the tides, that uh, it might be only the, the, the tuning of the instruments, as Timothy has said, but uh, uh, a very significant period for English history as well as then for, for Denmark.
Mm, yeah, certainly. And as Tim said, I suppose he's kind of overshadowed by the Norman conquest and maybe England as a whole kind of starts looking to the continent more. So Edward the Confessor has spent his exile in Normandy. And even if someone like Harold Godwinson um, had ruled after 1066, you know, he's from a very Anglo-Danish family. Um, so things might have been um, a bit different there. Um and it, it does seem like even he changed maybe a pin that Canute changed opinions even at the time. Um, so we have one um, contemporary uh, chronicler, um, sorry, a churchman um, on the continent, Fulbert of Chartres, who sort of writes to him and say, oh, we, we were told that you were a terrible pagan, but actually clearly you're not because you've given us all of this lovely stuff. So he's kind of won them over with all these um, sort of extravagant uh, donations to churches. So as was said earlier, you know, he's kind of proving proving his Christianity and, and that he, he sort of knows, knows how to act as a, as a Christian monarch should. Very good. Well, my thanks to my absolutely brilliant panel of experts for bringing King Canute, Canute the Great, back to life for us tonight on the show. Dr. Timothy Bolton and his most recent book, Canute the Great. Uh, Dr. Caitlin Ellison, very welcome to Dublin and to uh, the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies. Philip Parker, whose book is The Northman's Fury. Professor Levi Roach, who has written so much on Ethelred the Unready and Forgery and Memory and much more insta- as well. And Tura Skea, who we heard from as well. That, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. Thank you.